Hello everyone and welcome to the seventh case conference in the 2016-2017 CCB MJHS Palliative Care in the Patient-Centered Medical Home webinar series. My name is Dr. Michael Zablo. I'm an attending physician in the Division of Geriatrics and Palliative Medicine at New York Presbyterian Brooklyn Methodist Hospital. Before we get going, I have no financial arrangements or affiliations to disclose. I'm here today to talk to you about an 89-year-old woman with a history of arthritis, diabetes mellitus, and hypertension who's brought into the office by her daughter with complaints of weakness, difficulty functioning, and weight loss. Through this case, what I hope to review with everyone are the hallmarks of frailty, the importance of palliative medicine to improve the quality of life in the elderly, and also a brief review of prognostication tools for community-dwelling older adults. So to dive into our case, our daughter provides most of the history. For the past two years, the patient has rarely left her home, and then for the past six months, she has not left her home at all. She has been mobile within our house. She's been known to look out her windows quite often, but for the past three months, she has stayed on the same floor, not able to look out her windows on the second floor. For the past months, her movements have been limited to moving from her bed to her recliner, where she spends most of her day, from her recliner to the bathroom, and then also into her kitchen to prepare her meals. She will no longer walk to other rooms within her home. She's recently transitioned from using a quad cane to a rolling walker as well. She has had some moderate hip pain nearly all day, and this does get worse with movement. And her family has attempted to arrange home care for her, but as we see in some of our elderly patients, they resist feverishly. Additional history from the daughter includes that for the past year, the daughter's been doing all of the grocery shopping and also preparing her meals, which the patient then heats up as needed. The daughter describes these as almost like homemade TV dinners where she'll have a protein, a vegetable, and a starch in a little container, and then her mother will heat them up as she needs. When the daughter takes out the trash, though, she's been noticing that an increasing amount of these meals is going uneaten and being thrown away. During our exam, the patient is quiet, but she maintains eye contact, and she does not dispute any of the information that her daughter is providing. When you address the patient directly, she's able to answer questions, and she does so by responding in short sentences. She states that she recently has just not been feeling hungry, and she describes low energy, but, describes, but denies sleeping problems. She admits to feeling weak, which is why she does not want to leave her home. And she feels as if what she's been experiencing has really been a slow and gradual onset, not sudden. She does not feel that she is depressed, and she does not feel nervous. She looks forward to weekly visits from her granddaughters and also from her church friends. Her past medical history includes osteoarthritis, diabetes mellitus, hypertension, and a urinary tract infection treated 18 months ago with oral antibiotics. She is up to date on all of her vaccinations, and she's been visiting the clinic routinely for her yearly checkups. And on that checkup last year, her hemoglobin A1C was 6.8. Her medications include hydrochlorothiazide, 25 milligrams daily, amlodipine, 5 milligrams daily, 
metformin, 500 milligrams twice daily, glyburide, 2.5 milligrams daily, and then also acetaminophen, which she takes as needed for her hip pain. She has no history of alcohol, tobacco, or illicit drug use. She's been widowed for over 20 years. She's a former file clerk at an insurance company. She has two daughters, one who lives nearby and is the primary caregiver, the daughter who's brought her into the office today, and another daughter who's moved out of state. They do keep in touch frequently by phone. She receives Social Security and also has income from a garden-level apartment in her home that she rents out. She's also a Protestant. Her family history, her mother died of old age at 89 years. Her father passed away at age 80 from congestive heart failure. Her brother passed at age 75 from a myocardial infarction. And her sister is alive at age 80 who has hypertension and arthritis. Her daughters and her granddaughters have no medical history to contribute either. On review of systems, we see that the patient is feeling generally weak and also having a poor appetite. On the musculoskeletal portion, she has that right hip pain, which is usually mild, but does get worse with movement, and she denies any back pain or neck pain. The rest of the review systems is essentially negative. On physical exam, her height is 5 feet 5 inches. Her weight in November of 2015 was 150 pounds, which corresponds to a BMI of 25. And then in November of 2016, her weight was 130 pounds, which corresponds to a BMI of 21.6. Her vital signs at her office visit last year were a blood pressure of 120 over 68, a pulse of 72, a respiration rate of 18, and an oxygen saturation of 99%. This was on room air. This time around in her office, her blood pressure has decreased to 106 over 62, with a pulse of 78 beats per minute, a respiratory rate of 20, and an oxygen saturation has remained stable at 99%. She has a glucose of 95 on an office finger stick. On physical exam, her head, eyes, ears, nose and throat, cardiovascular system, pulmonary exam are all normal. Her abdomen is soft, non-tender, non-distended. There's also normal bowel sounds. On the musculoskeletal exam, there is decreased grip strength and a slow walking speed with mild crepitus of the hips, knees, and wrists. There's also some mild sarcopenia. A get up and go test is performed which has a normal standing, turning, and sitting, and she does this in 20 seconds. For those of you who may not be familiar with the get up and go or the timed up and go test, I'll review that in just a minute. Her neurologic exam, she's alert and oriented with no focal deficits. In her psychiatric uh, portion, there's normal affect. There's a geriatric depression score, another commonly used tool I'll go over in a minute with everybody, had a score of three, where the patient was feeling bored, feeling somewhat helpless, and, denied, and was not feeling full of energy. A mini mental status exam was 26 out of 30. So for a get up and go test, sometimes called a timed up and go test or tug test, what you'd like the patient to do is sit comfortably in a straight back chair, similar to the way I am now, then rise from the chair, stand still momentarily, walk approximately 10 feet, turn around, walk back to the chair, turn around again, and then sit down. And we want to time this exam. 
There are a number of different timing schematics that are available, but one of the more generally accepted is that the patient should be able to do this in less than 12 seconds. If the patient takes more than 12 seconds to do this, then they're at a higher risk for falls. Those of you who might be more visual learners, a simple internet search, you'll be able to find videos of both good and bad timed up and go tests. Now this is the geriatric depression score. And I apologize about the small font, and I'll go over these answers with you. This is a simple 15 questionnaire, 15 question questionnaire that you can give to your elderly patients who you are worried might be having depressive symptoms. When I review these questions, the answer that I'll give, which is also bolded, corresponds to feeling depressed. Are you basically satisfied with your life? No. Have you dropped many of your activities and interests? Yes. Do you feel that your life is empty? Yes. Do you often get bored? Yes. Are you in good spirits most of the time? No. Are you afraid that something bad is going to happen to you? Yes. Do you feel happy most of the time? No. Do you feel helpless? Yes. Do you prefer to stay at home rather than going out and doing new things? A depressed or patient would likely answer yes. Do you feel you have more problems with memory than most? Yes. Do you feel that it is wonderful to be alive now? No. Do you feel pretty worthless the way you are now? Yes. Do you feel full of energy? No. Do you feel your situation is hopeless? Yes. And do you think that most people are better off than you? A depressed person would say yes. Now, if a patient answers in the depressed answer for five of these questions, it is suggestive of depression and it should warrant some follow-up, either from you or a psychiatric professional. If there's 10 or more answers that are depressed, this is almost always depression and we really need to start considering treatment. So back into our case now, a laboratory dipstick, or urine dipstick, excuse me, was negative. A point of care blood glucose, as we said before, was 95, and a BNP, CBC, hemoglobin A1C, and thyroid panel were ordered. A hip and pelvis x-ray was also ordered. So at this point now, I think it's a good time to pause and ask a question of the audience. And that would be, of this constellation of symptoms that our patient is experiencing, which of these might be the best diagnosis? Is it debility? Is it frailty? or is it normal aging, or sometimes called old age? And the correct answer is frailty. Frailty is a complicated diagnosis based on criteria that continue to emerge in the literature. And what makes it difficult is that there is really no gold standard. Frailty is a diagnosis where you might ask five to 10 physicians and get five to 10 different answers, but the most common one will likely be, I know it when I see it, or one of the most well-accepted models. Of, to diagnose frailty is something called the FREED index, or also known as the phenotype of frailty. And by this index, there are five measures. If a patient has three or more, they'll frail. These measures are weakness, slowness, a low level of physical activity, exhaustion or poor endurance, and also weight loss. On the right-hand side of the screen in blue, I put down how our patient meets these criteria. For weakness, she does have decreased grip strength. For slowness, the get up and go test took 20 seconds. 
A low level of physical activity is admitted by the patient. Exhaustion, she does admit to having less energy. And weight loss, where we documented a 20-pound weight loss over the past year. Now, one common question or misconception is that frailty and disability is the same thing. But in actual, they're different. Disability is a chronic limitation. And patients who are frail will have reduced functional reserve, a reduced ability to regain homeostasis after an insult, and also an impairment in multiple physiologic symptoms, excuse me, systems. Basically, a frail patient will get sicker, faster, and take a longer time to recover. There's also reports in the literature of increased levels of the inflammatory cytokine interleukin-6 in frail elderly patients. So coming on to our next teaching point is how can palliative care help with frail elderly patients? And one thing to keep in mind is that palliative care focuses on the management of illness burden from the time of diagnosis forward. And when we look at the symptoms of a frail patient, this is how palliative medicine can help improve their life. So for poor appetite and weight loss, we know that there are many different appetite stimulants on the market. However, none of them have been shown to improve quality of life. Megestrel acetate is actually on the beers list or the beers criteria, and I'll get, to, I'll get into what that is in just a few slides. Mirtazapine has been shown to increase weight in depressed patients. However, it has not been proven to have the same effect in non-depressed patients. There are the commercially available nutritional supplements, such as the shakes or puddings, and while these have been shown to increase weight, they have not been shown to have any effect on a patient's quality of life. Depending on the prognosis, we can always consider a nutrition consultation to help optimize the patient's diet. But as a palliative care physician, one thing I often advocate for is to liberalize the patient's diet. One aside that I have is that a few months ago, I was consulted in the inpatient setting to see an elderly woman with bilateral breast masses. She was becoming more and more weak, similar to our patient, and the family was doing their best to take care of her. They were very, very frustrated that she was essentially refusing to eat. Well, that is until fried chicken and ribs from her favorite restaurant were given to her, and then they said it was a completely different woman. As a palliative care physician, my advice was to, to give her more. While obviously we don't want to give her fried chicken and ribs for every single meal, to increase the frequency, to increase her caloric intake might be appropriate, depending on the patient's goals of care. As for our patient's declining function, outpatient physical therapy for gait and balance training is very important. As for all elderly patients, we really want to avoid falls, especially if a patient breaks a hip, this could be catastrophic. There are some specialized assist devices um, that are available on the market. For instance, there are recliners that will electronically raise the patient almost vertically so that they don't fall while trying to stand. We can give acetaminophen, acetaminophen three times a day, scheduled to help with hip help with arthritic pain. And one very important thing is to also remove unsafe items or flooring transitions in the home. And this can sometimes be very difficult. For those of you who might not understand what I'm talking about, I do have some pictures. Here on the left, you see a tile floor with an area rug, and that area rug also has an electric cable along it. This is a tripping hazard, not just for elderly, but also for regular, uh, fully mobile young adults. We always want to try and remove these from the home. Another reason 
area rugs are bad. If you see the picture on the right, the carpet is not firmly is not firmly attached to the ground. Again, another tripping hazard, not just for frail elderly adults, but for young adults as well. This next picture I have here is one of the flooring transitions I was speaking of. You see this is almost a two-inch gap in between the hardwood floor and the tile floor. Once again, for elderly patients who might not be lifting their feet all the way off the ground when they take each step, this is a tripping hazard. As for our patients' boredom and hopelessness, we want to try and encourage new or familiar activities. There's been a recent study that showed elderly patients with a purpose for life and or hobbies have less morbidity, less mortality, and a slower decline in activities of daily living. This was even adjusted for both age and comorbidities. While everyone here might assume that information, this article was actually able to prove it. Now, as for medication optimization, as a palliative care physician, we often advocate for less aggressive control of their chronic conditions. More aggressive control is often associated with more complications and more medication side effects. And this is where the Beers criteria comes into play. This is a list maintained by the American Geriatric Society that, is, that has a list of potentially inappropriate medications for adults over 65. This could be due to side effect profile, could be due to prolonged activity in the, bo in the body, or reduced clearance. This is updated every few years, and at the bottom of the screen, you'll see a, the citation for the 2015 update, which is the most recent one. Again, a internet search for the Beers criteria will also bring up the most recent edition. At this point now, I'd like to ask another question. Which of our patients' medications are known to be potentially inappropriate in the elderly? Is it acetaminophen, hydrochlorothiazide, amlodipine, glyburide, or metformin? And here, the correct answer is glyburide. Like all sulfonylureas, there's a risk of severe prolonged hypoglycemia. There are many common medications on the Beers criteria, one of which is something as simple as insulin. There's reduced clearance in the elderly, so in geriatric patients, we'll often start an insulin sliding scale when they're admitted to the hospital at 200 rather than the standard 150. And depending on the goals of care, or if they're a palliative patient, might start that sliding scale as high as 150, uh, excuse me, as high as 250 prior to giving insulin. One last thing we want to do in our office is to initiate an advanced directives or goals of care discussion. We want to advocate that the patient completes a healthcare proxy so that there is a healthcare agent, but even more important is to make sure that the healthcare agent understands what the patient would want in a certain situation. Also, remember that this discussion is billable. The CPT code 99497 is for the first 30 minutes of advanced care planning, and then 99498 for each additional 30 minutes of advanced care planning. So to summarize, we have an 89-year-old woman with declining function, weakness, and weight loss. Our assessment reveals increasing debility for the past year with fewer activities and a 20-pound weight loss, a poor appetite and low energy despite adequate sleep, with hip pain, she is a high risk for falls based on our based on our get up and go test, and our geriatric depression score was negative for depression. 
So at the conclusion of the appointment, the patient is sent home with a referral for home physical therapy, decided to start acetaminophen on a scheduled basis. The family decided to go to, to a nutritionist and also try and introduce more variety to her diet. And the daughter is also going to attempt to increase stimulating activities at home. For instance, she's going to reintroduce crafts, something the patient used to enjoy greatly. The amlodipine and glyburide were discontinued, and a follow-up was scheduled for six weeks. Once the patient returned home, the labs returned, and while they were grossly unremarkable, the hemoglobin A1C was down to 5.7. This just reinforces that we were correct to discontinue the glyburide. The hip and pelvis x-ray showed osteoarthritis, but no fractures or dislocations. And these results were discussed separately with both the patient and her daughter. When you spoke to the daughter, you followed up on some of the other recommendations, for instance, the nutritionist and the physical therapist who had been contacted, although the family has yet to discuss healthcare proxy and advanced directives. Now, unfortunately, one week prior to the follow-up, you get a phone call from the patient's daughter who reports that she was found on the floor of her home. She has been brought to the emergency department as well. X-rays in the ED did not find any fractures, and thankfully, a CAT scan of the head was negative. The EKG was negative for any ischemic changes or arrhythmias. The blood pressure was 114 over 70, and orthostatics were negative. A finger stick in the emergency department was 105, and the lab showed some acute kidney injury. She's been admitted to the hospital for further treatment and workup. So at bedside in the hospital, the daughter reports that her mother did well for the first two weeks, but then her progress stalled. While she had less pain, her mobility did not improve, and this is despite having four sessions of physical therapy. Our patient remembers the fall, which was due to tripping over a transition of materials between her bathroom and her hallway. And since the last visit, she's developed a small stage one pressure ulcer on her sacrum. Her appetite problems have continued, and she's lost another four pounds despite having more variety in a nutrition consult. So now at this point, a discussion was held in the patient's room with her and her family. Her daughter, one daughter was present, and their daughter who lives further away was over the phone. And the family was guided and encouraged to discuss what quality of life consists of for the patient. And after our emotional discussion, the patient's named her daughter, who is her primary caregiver, as her healthcare agent, and her daughter, who lives further away, as the alternate agent. She's also then decided to sign her own DNR and DNI. At this point, her daughters then ask you what their mother's life expectancy may be, and this is a very difficult question. One thing I'd like to ask the audience is, which of the following factors are common to the various validated prognostication tools for community-dwelling older adults? Is it age, sex, comorbidities, functional status, or all of the above? And the correct answer is all of the above. Here in this chart, I have made for everyone a list of validated prognostication tools for community-dwelling older adults. This spans from one year to five years. And you'll see on the right the prognostic factors that each tool includes. For the one-year tool, it only looks at comorbidities. But after that, each one contains age, sex, functionality. Most include comorbidities. The five-year tool includes age, sex, comorbidities, previous hospitalizations, functional status, and perceived health. 
while it would be too much time to go through everything here, what I will tell you is that the one-year prognosis is greater is about 90%, while the five-year prognosis is probably closer to about 30%. So at this point, the patient has, has been discharged to a local subacute rehabilitation center, and we're, this is where she participated to the best of her ability and spent less time in bed. And after 20 days, her pressure ulcer has started to show improvement, and while her appetite remains poor, she did not lose any more weight. The patient has now agreed to move in with her daughter, except home health services and a home palliative care program has also been contacted to monitor her condition at home. At this point, the family is starting to decide that comfort should be the focus. So with our last few minutes remaining, I'd like to open up for any questions from the audience regarding our patient. So one question that I've gotten here is that, is this patient a candidate for hospice? And I will be honest, this is a very tricky situation. As we said in our prognostication tool, she has a 90% chance of living for greater than one year. When we sign on to hospice, two physicians have to say that this patient has a prognosis of six months or less. Now, if this patient, say, had CHF or another chronic condition that caused significant debility, we might then um, be able to qualify our patient for hospice. But at this time, I don't think she is. The palliative care program that's following her at home will most likely keep a very close eye on her. And if and when it becomes appropriate for hospice, the referral will most likely be made. So one thing I always like to keep in mind as both a geriatrician and a palliative care physician is that the patient's quality of life is of the utmost importance. Many elderly patients tend to be very firm and set in their ways. And to break these ways, for instance, our patient who is refusing home care services could be very, very difficult, if not even make the patient more stressed and make things worse. We always want to have a compassionate approach to what is going on. And we always want to respect the patient's living situation. While we all feel it might be very appropriate for some patients like this to move into their move into their families' homes if they're willing to do so, the patient might resist and might cause them more stress and maybe even affect their quality of life by now being dependent on others to assist them. It doesn't seem like there are any other questions here, so one last thing I'd like to remind people is to check out the beers criteria. Medications there are organized both by um, by actual medication and also by disease. So if you're dying, for instance, if you're treating a patient with seizures or new onset seizures, checking out the Beers criteria will give you a list of medications that might have a less advantageous side effect profile than others. I absolutely believe that it's something that you should consider looking at for all elderly patients, whether or not, whether you're treating acute conditions or chronic conditions. It's available for free over the, over the internet, and I would highly recommend that everybody look at it. So at this point now, I think that's all the time that we have, and I'd like to thank everyone for attending the webinar. We have the next webinar uh, called Understanding and Using the Hospice Benefit by a physician I'm very proud to call a mentor and a friend, Dr. Bernard Lee, the Associate Chief Medical Officer of MJHS Hospice and Palliative Care coming up on Wednesday, February 22nd at 12.30 p.m.
I'd also like to remind everyone to complete the evaluations to help us in planning our future sessions. All attendees will receive email instructions later today on how to obtain their CME credit. It's been a pleasure presenting to you, and I hope to see everybody soon.